This is Euroscopic, a podcast that happens when a journalist from America's north and one from America's south see the world from the place they met, the center of Europe. I'm William Glucroft. And this is Martin Gack. And today is Thursday, September 7th, 2023. In this week's episode, we're looking at new COVID worries, new headaches for the Wagner Group, cleaning house in Ukraine, and more blurry lines between Europe's conservatives and the far right. Plus, a story or two that will take us into next week. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can get this and past episodes at euroscopic.substack.com. Now, let's get into the week that was and why. Well, Martin, happy September. This is our first episode of September, our eighth episode. Happy two months to us, I guess. Two months, two months running, and we're still here, so... We're still here. We're not going anywhere, much as some people might like us to. Uh, the summer is definitely going somewhere. Of course, we had the, 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 the lion that was actually a boar at the beginning of the summer. And uh, the summer seems to be ending with a story sort of in the same vein as it began here in Germany. After much ado, apparently scientists have discovered why I said that... Um, Wild boars in Germany, particularly in uh, in Bayern, are radioactive. In the wake of Chernobyl, there were a lot of animals that actually register high radioactivity. Most of those actually faded over you know the last 30 years or so. Not so wild boars, and it was not really understood why this was the case. Truffles actually take part of the sedimented radioactive material. Uh, and reconducted into the bodies of wild boars. Certainly never a boring day in Germany, you might say. Well done. Well That's right. done. I had to I had to go there. I had to go there. They just have very rich tastes, those boars. They love those those expensive truffles. Well, hopefully the meal I have planned for tonight is not radioactive. Um some I'm I'm sure our listeners, maybe all of Europe has have felt a profound, if not in, but albeit implicit, change. And not just because of the summer, but in fact, two very special visitors have come to Europe, that being my parents, friends of the show, friends of Euroscopic. My parents are in town. What are you making for them? Oh, so we're, they're coming over for dinner dinner tonight, and I've made a, another fine dish uh, for Italian taste. I've made a, a big thing of caponata, which is one of my favorite meals. I'm very, very partial to... Uh, a lot of eggplant and a lot of olives. I mean, the thing about caponata is it always feels like you're eating something very, very oily, um, which it is very oily. Basically, when in doubt, add more oil, which uh, definitely brings us to another small story, although it's actually a very important story this week, uh, which is uh, a huge olive oil theft uh, in one of the largest, not the largest producers of olive oil in the world, that's Spain. Half a million dollars worth of olive oil has been stolen uh, from a warehouse, basically, in Spain, storing the olive oil. Uh, this comes at a time of, uh, you know, surging prices in olive oil. Olive oil being just one one of many commodities that's currently, you know, the prices are going through the roof. And uh, it reminds me, actually, of about a decade ago, uh, the maple syrup heist. Maple syrup to Canada is like oil. Uh, for oil producing countries, they actually have just like the U.S. has a strategic oil reserve. Canada literally has a strategic maple syrup reserve because it's such a valuable commodity for them, just like olive oil for Spain. And about a decade ago, there was a major theft. Millions of dollars worth of maple syrup were stolen. 
saw a headline about um, that airlines are dropping their prices, especially for flights, uh, transatlantic flights to Europe now that the, the peak summer season is over. Uh, so unfortunately, my parents, I think, got a little bit screwed by coming when they did. If they waited a bit, yes, the weather would be worse, but they might uh, they might have gotten a cheaper cheaper airfare. However, with the fall approaching, of course, we can't avoid it like everyone else seems to be talking about right now is is COVID coming back? And there, but there's a lot of buts here. Uh, yes, there are new variants. Yes, uh, infection rates are going up. And there is a new vaccine, an updated vaccine. At least it's coming to Germany around mid-September, around this time of year. So I've, so I've read. Uh, but at the same time, public health officials say, much like the previous variants, uh, the ones that are out right now circulating will be even more contagious, but not necessarily more dangerous. So it really makes it difficult for individuals to really you know, evaluate the risk it opens up a big question if there's even the political will for any kind of restrictions as we move into the colder months. Uh, it actually gives fuel to the far right and to populist apparatuses across the globe. So this is also one of the considerations, in my view, that we will hear about. Well, we're going to get more later in the show about you know, the the political pressures, the far right political pressures on the political system uh, all around the EU. But first, let's get to uh, another important story, just a wrap. Uh, and that is the latest on the Wagner Group. Uh, they just can't seem to get to break. I mean, this is this was, you know, one time this was like the all powerful, you know, murky in the shadows, uh, private military contractor, I'm sorry, mercenary group. Um, you know, that did the evil bidding of, of Russia without Russia having to actually own up to it. But in the last several months, you know, they, they turned into cannon fodder outside Bakhmut uh, in Ukraine. Then they launched this half-assed coup that still has a lot of questions surrounding it, which drove them into Belarus. Then their boss falls out of the sky in a mysterious plane crash. And now there's a latest that the United Kingdom wants to put them on a terror, make them, basically make them a terrorist organization. Martin, what does that mean? What does it does it even mean anything for the Wagner Group to be on a terrorist list from the UK? What they would be able to do is to seize assets uh, of Wagner, Wagner related people the moment that is a terrorist organization. And we know that, I mean, there is, you know, London being awash with Russian money, but particularly Prigozhin having had uh, quite a bit of dealings with the with the uh, London market, including, if I'm not mistaken, real estate market. It is a curious uh, piece of news because it could have happened, you know, I mean, essentially a year and a half ago when the war started. Uh, but for some reason, uh, it seems that now, uh, and perhaps it has something to do with the possible death of Prigozhin, uh, you know, there is a possibility of capturing these assets. And I think that this is really what the UK government is is after. Now, on the flip side of things, we've got the Ukrainian sort of shakeup of, of military command structure. We saw the dismissal of the uh, Ukraine's defense minister uh, in this week. And uh, we have a potential new candidate to take his place. Martin, I think you also can tell us what's behind this sort of cleaning house that Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, seems to be doing. So, I mean, what we had was basically Alexei Resnikov, who was the um, defense minister, and he became a very prominent figure, obviously, because, well, because of the context and the situation, uh, was sort of assailed by a really fairly massive case of 
corruption uh, in his ranks. He was never accused and he was not really involved in any of the corruption. So at some point over the last four or five weeks, I would say the rumor began to circulate that Resnikov was on his way out. And the person that is going to replace him seems to be Rustem Umerov. Uh, Umerov is actually a very interesting figure because he's, besides being a soldier, uh, he's also a Tartar uh, Muslim from Crimea. Uh, observer circles that this is sort of the strongest message. Uh, that Kiev, that, that Zelensky himself has sent about what his intent is uh, and his long strategic goal is in relation to the war, which is essentially, well, recuperate Crimea for Ukraine. Uh, my sense is that the Ukrainians are keenly aware of war fatigue uh, across the West. I think that what, uh, you know, Zelensky is trying to do is sort of present some fresh new faces and see if he can actually reinvigorate uh, a bit of this this week. I mean, it's really just a bit of, I mean, switching chairs, perhaps one would say, um, and no more than that. But I think that it's something that uh, it's it's probably overdue. If and whenever this war ends, there's going to be a reconstruction process, and that's also going to be hundreds of billions of of euros. The figure goes back and forth depending on who's in, who's interested in in inflating the number more. Um, but I'm sure there's going to be have to be uh, there's going to be a huge question about how do you actually ensure transparency of all of all this money in a country that, at least in from an administrative perspective, uh, doesn't have a great track record of transparency and good use of funds. Without blushing, one can say that, you know, Zelensky's administration for as long as it lasted before the war started uh, and before him, President Poroshenko, uh, who came in as a reformer, uh, you know, did not play a very different game in terms of sort of transparency and the management of public funds that played then, uh, you know, President Viktor Yanukovych, who actually was, you know, smoked out of Kiev. He's now apparently living in Russia precisely because not only abuse of power, but the massive amount of corruption. I mean, Ukraine has quite clearly a problem of, uh, you know, uh, uh, institutional cultures and political cultures. Uh, the issue, I think, that for many of the, the underwriters of the war and then the potential reconstruction uh, is that to some degree, this is a question of choosing between the, 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 the least of two evils. On the one hand, in terms of governance, obviously not in terms of, you know, the moral standing, perhaps geopolitically. Uh, but then the other the other part is that, you know, if countries like the US or Germany or France or, or the UK for sure are involved in the reconstruction of Ukraine, there will be a lot of money uh, to be distributed uh, to clients of these governments. Of course, the longer term, the longer term aspiration of joining the EU, which comes with us meeting certain benchmarks about corruption and transparency and, 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 and governance. So our main topic for this week is the European far right and its sort of bedfellowship with the center right that is actually making allowances for the sake of political gain. Any lovely examples of that? And are there any concerns that you have as you see this thing unfolding? We can actually just focus on the state of Bavaria. There's been a couple wonderful things to come out uh, of that state recently. Of course, we had the Hubert Aiwanger scandal. Aiwanger, which, by the way, fantastic name. I mean, in a country full of Müllers, I think Aiwanger is just really a top name 
but he is the deputy of the state government there, and they're going into elections next month. And lo and behold, there was a, uh, an anti-Semitism scandal going back to his school years. I'm not going to get into it here because it's been widely reported and the scandal at the peak of it is, is past. Uh, but it basically brought up this question of do you really need a far right party to to be in power, to have far right ideas in power? Or is it enough for the far right to exist in the political spectrum, to push the political spectrum to the right, that you have especially conservative uh, parties, center right parties, essentially picking up the tropes and the messaging of the far right? And you basically have the far right in power. Uh, in all but name. So we saw this in the Ivanger case, where there's still a lot of open questions. In fact, the opposition in the state parliament in Bavaria are having a special inquiry into, is this guy an anti-Semite? Is he not? I think that's a bit of a distraction about uh, uh, that question uh, from 35 years ago, what he did as a student. I think more pertinent questions would be, is he a xenophobe in many other ways? But of course, in Germany, all that really people in, in politics focus on are, do you like the Jews or not? Not do you like black people? Do you like Muslims? Do you like refugees? Do you, you know, it's it's really, uh, given the history, uh, all that really will get you in trouble is if you're an anti-Semite. And you can kind of get away with saying a lot of other things. Uh, in the middle of all of this, we have the leader of the Christian Democrats uh, in Germany, uh, with another sort of strange, controversial statement somehow channeling uh, the ghosts of Christmas past. Also taking place in Bavaria. Remember, Bavaria is a rich and conservative state. I mean, the CSU, the Christian Social Union, dominates this state. And if you go to any of their party functions, there is a crucifix on the wall. There is prayer at the party functions drive around out anywhere outside of a city outside of munich go into the villages of, of bavaria the, the the entrance to these villages have a crucifix on them we're talking about a conservative christian place just to you know kind of paint the picture of what this of what this uh, this area looks like and we see that again also in bavaria friedrich Merz. he is as you mentioned the head of the christian democrats kind of the big brother uh, to the CSU at the Bavarian level, the CDU obviously op, you know functions all around uh, Germany and leads leads that that conservative grouping at the federal level. And Matz went down to a Bavarian Volksfest, one of these big traditional uh, you know small town uh, festivals that kind of like Oktoberfest, a different kind of Oktoberfest. Dirndls, big big jugs of beer. You know, think about all your stereotypes of Bavaria, and there you have it. And he, in giving this very political speech for his conservative values, he said, uh, you know, uh, Gilemus, which is the name of this festival, another wonderful word, Gilemus is Germany, Kreuzberg is not Germany. And Kreuzberg is, of course, a very immigrant-heavy, uh, gentrified-to-hell um, uh, neighborhood in Berlin. It's really well-known around Germany as being this kind of mixture, this very ethnically diverse place. Um, and that immediately set off alarm bells all around Germany and has been a big scandal because basically that not basically that is far right uh, race baiting. Right. That is saying you are not German. These other people are German. The good white people, you know, drinking beer and wearing dirndls in a Bavarian, you know, a small town Bavarian festival. You're the real Germans. Those immigrants in Kreuzberg are not. Um, and it, th this is the, this is the head of the center right. You know, this is the party that has ruled Germany for so much of its post-war history, saying these things as a as a bid to win voters, to win back far right voters. But it's no better than the far right itself. This is something that I just want to put to you as a way to modulate uh, the charge: is that 
in some sense, channeling those votes uh, into a CDU, sort of into a center-right political alignment with a certain right political set of propositions, might be much safer uh, than allowing basically those votes to end up in the AFD or a party that would actually bring those agenda items directly to the table. This is the writing on the wall that many people in the center right are seeing and are actually rightly afraid of it. My counterpoint would be, uh, if you're going to get the same far right ideas uh, and small minded sort of parochialism, uh, if it's in everything but name only, I'm not quite sure if there's a big difference. But uh, Friedrich Merz, um, the one thing I, I think is he plays a really excellent role in a democratic system with a variety of parties that also is based as a coalition based system is with Friedrich Merz, you finally have a real center right party again. Under Angela Merkel, the CDU kind of became an, a party for everybody, kind of a, a wishy washy centrist party. Um, obviously, Merkel was well known for sort of leading from behind, waiting to see which way the political winds were going and then jumping on board and taking credit for issues. She became much more of a centrist and pulled the party much more to the center. And the SPD, the Social Democrats that she was often uh, in a coalition with, moved more to the right. So you have these two giant parties that kind of met in the soft, cuddly, ubiquitous, boring center of German politics. And neither party really stood for anything, which kind of allowed the AFD to kind of pick up the slack in that sense. So in, in a way, from, from, a, from the health of a democratic political spectrum, it's actually you want a strong center right party that has real center right roots and is going to stand for something, whether you agree with it or not. The problem is the SPD, the Social Democrats, have not returned to a strong center left position. So without a strong center left party to counterbalance the strong center right party, all you get is a shift to the right. And as we've seen in Germany and around Europe, the collapse of social democratic parties, these once mighty powerful uh, uh, parties that really ruled a lot of governments in a lot of European countries, and a lot of those voters migrating to the right due to globalization, due to influxes of migrants, due to a sense of feeling that they've been abandoned by their social democratic, you know, political representatives, um, you just have this lurch to the right. So it's not per se that it's bad, so to speak, that there's this strong center right and the center right maybe flirts with the far right. It's that there's nothing on the left side, on the equivalent side over on the other side of the spectrum to offer anything as an alternative. And having that lack of balance is that's the dangerous part for democracy you begin to see sort of the rapid proliferation of center-right parties kind of bringing in far-right brutes as junior partners. So, I mean, Sweden, Finland, Spain very, very recently. I mean, France kind of not clear where the, the Republicans are in relation to the Rassemblement National, but obviously Le Pen is much stronger than them. So if they want to stay, you know, I mean, in Italy, Forza Italia actually went into, you know, essentially legitimize the Lega and legitimize Fratelli Italia, which was a direct, a direct inheritor of, of Italian fascism. Well, I think what we have ahead of us is more of these questions of wedge issues and culture wars. Uh, Martin, do you want to give us an update on what's going on with the so-called Abaya ban in France? So the French have actually, uh, the French government has actually banned now the buyer or like full coverages from uh, schools. 
uh, and they have uh, at the beginning of this week turned uh, down from entering schools 300. I mean, the, the official number were 300 girls that try to come into schools wearing them. The person that campaigned on banning the by and other types of conspicuous uh, religious symbols worn into schools and the public the public space was Le Pen, and it was Macron who went into one of the debates and told Le Pen that actually doing this was not only against the constitution, but it actually would create, and these were his words, uh, a civil war. Can we expect any kind of you know legal any kind of suit is there any kind of pushback against this ban is anyone trying to overturn it as you said macron himself said this is possibly unconstitutional i mean i think that we're going to see different types of pushback and we're going to hear outrage uh, you have to keep in mind that when you know the french look at the us experiment with freedom of religion what they see is a miserable failure they do not really see you know an example to be followed so I think that what you will see is a bit of a back and forth, but I think that this is pretty much set uh, because mm -hmm. there's nothing in the political horizon other than maybe a, a court somewhere that could push a dial in the other direction. What do you have coming up? Well, I think the big thing coming up on the European level, you know, we're talking a lot about how, you know, trying to keep the far right at bay and and Europe, as we know, the European Union is the sum is no better than the sum of its parts. So. At a, at a national level, whether it's France, whether it's Germany, you mentioned earlier in the episode, Nor uh, F Finland, Sweden, et cetera, uh, trying to keep trying to find this balance of keeping the far right at bay while also and by keeping them at bay, you do that by sort of adopting some of their ideas, kind of throw a bone at some of their some of their voters, maybe. And that, of course, trickles up to the European Union level. And that, I think, is something we're going to see in the week ahead, because because in the week ahead we have. Uh, the much talked about State of the Union, and that being the State of the European Union address. Uh, Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president, uh, giving what could be her last uh, address uh, as the as the Commission president, giving her last State of the Union address, where she'll stand before Parliament and talk about some of the major issues that are coming up. Of course, we do have European parliamentary elections coming up in the springtime of 2024. And then there's a big talk of, will she stay on as the European Commission president? Will there be someone else? Um, do people want her to stay on as the Commission president? But beyond her, because I don't really, I'm never really that interested in, in personality politics. Um, there are probably some issues we're gonna be talking about, about especially EU enlargement. Do we take the Balkans? Where does Ukraine fit into that? Does Ukraine, Ukraine get some kind of special treatment um, over the Balkans, even though the Balkans have been waiting for years uh, to come into the European Union, the question of the far right and what to do to, you know, to address the very real resentment and the very real sense of dissatisfaction among many voting populations around the European Union. And there's probably going to be talk about gearing up for the elections, fake news, disinformation, preserving democracy, transparency, these kinds of things. And something, Martin, I think you can give us a very quick wrap on is the the knock-on effects or the next developments in both the Digital Markets Act and what we talked about last week, the Digital Services Act. What we're going to see ahead is essentially the attempted application uh, of these rules on big American behemoths, mostly. Uh, and the big question ahead is essentially how they will react. I mean, obviously, Apple and Google and Amazon have already sort of, you know, said that they will be a you know, bowing to the new rules, they will be following the new rules. But there is a very long list of things actually that need to happen. Uh, so we will talk more about that probably next week.
that's it for this week's Euroscopic with William Glucroft and Martin Gack. Written by us, produced by us, and edited by me. Euroscopic has no institutional backing or funding of any kind, so if you like what you hear, consider pledging your support. You can do that at euroscopic.substack.com. You can also like, subscribe, and share this and other episodes. We're available on Apple, Google, Spotify, and just about wherever your ears go for podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you again next week.